HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. All right, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Today on The Farm Report, we're taking a little trip to Connecticut. We are on the line with Terry Jones of Jones Family Farms. Terry, welcome to the show today. Good afternoon, Erin, and uh, thank you for having me. Oh, I am stoked for the show. I mean, going through your bio, getting ready for today, um, there's like so much wonderful stuff that you and the farm have been a part of for seven generations, according according to your website. So which generation are you? I'm generation five. Does it get tough to keep track of? <laughs> well, I feel very blessed because I'm sandwiched. Uh, my dad is still alive at 93 and uh, I get to uh, enjoy life every day with, with uh, my dad, myself, my kids, and my grandchildren. How cool is that? Yeah, it's a family affair. So why don't we um, kind of set the scene? Now, obviously, you were born into the farming lifestyle and born into the farm, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about it, its history and kind of what it looks like today. Sure. Well, the farm has been here since... Uh, 1848, uh, Philip James Jones, he was actually Welsh-Irish and came over in the 1830s uh, to visit his brother in Bridgeport, who was a leather harness maker. But the sailing trip was very unpleasant, uh, a lot of storms, very seasick, so he never went back. And uh, he eventually bought this farm in Shelton because it reminded him of his uh, county Kildare in, in Ireland with the hills and the, the greenness. And uh, he, he pieced together what's now the Jones family farm, and uh, his son carried on, and uh, it evolved as times changed into a dairy farm from more subsistence uh, agriculture. And... Uh, 
dairy has now evolved into uh, Christmas trees, which was my dad's uh, first love was uh, was forestry, and so he was a pioneer in Christmas tree growing, uh, actually selling his first 12 trees the year I was born in 1947. And if you detect a pattern here, it's each generation has kind of started something new. So I got into uh, organic vegetables and, and then strawberries and blueberries, and uh, our son came along and came back from Cornell with a idea of vineyards and winemaking, and uh, remains to be seen what his sons might do. Well, that's exciting. seems like the, the possibilities are limitless, and I am excited. We're going to actually have Jamie on the show next week to talk a little bit more um, about his work uh, in the winery and uh, get his perspective on the farm. Well, how, how big is the farm? What is, what is the layout, and what are White Hills? Like, what does that well, mean? The White Hills is a district, um, like all those districts of uh, Brooklyn, um, Park Slope and Windsor Terrace and so on. So the White Hills district of Shelton is the more rural. Um, the hills are five, 600 feet above the sea level of the uh, downtown area, and the snow often would stick on the hills uh, and not down along the Housatonic River. So the hills were white, and uh, that's why they call it the White Hills. Okay. Uh, although there's another school of thought, history is always a fascinating subject, that uh, the beautiful chestnut trees, which uh, covered the ridges before their demise uh, almost 100 years ago, uh, in the spring turned white with their uh, chestnut bloom. But our farm is uh, currently about 400 acres. We've increased its size uh, significantly in the last uh, two or three decades, uh, trying to keep ahead of suburban sprawl and preserve as much land as we could so we're sustainable with land for uh, buffering against the urban fringe and um, give us healthy uh, crop rotation. Sure, and it sounds like the farm right now is supporting a number of different generations, and I can only assume a number of different families. So the the size, I think, also you know the farmer to size ratio. I think in Connecticut, it's a little bit far, the average farm size is closer to you know ninety acres, I think, whereas in New York it's somewhere just just under two hundred. So you guys are uh, above average for the area. Sounds like right, um, but. Um the, uh, the other thing that makes us a little unique is that every, every crop, everything we grow is sold here at the farm uh, directly to families coming out to harvest their own, uh, the exception being, of course, the wine. They, uh, <laughs> it's made here, but they don't harvest it. Uh, It'd be and a this s- is long a, process. <laughs> a, a type of agriculture that is definitely on the increase because it's Sort of maximizes the profitability, not having a middle, a middle person, uh, and one reason that's been so successful here is, you know, I've alluded a little to the generations of the Jones boys, but by far the secret of our success for all these generations have been the women that we have convinced to come and marry us, be our partners, <laughs> and uh, 
they reinvigorate um, uh, the viability of the farm because they've been extremely innovative and uh, attentive to um, having a uh, servicing our our customers or our guests, as we refer to them. So it's it's added a, an enormous uh, component to the success of the farm, which, by the way, is exactly 80 miles from Times Square. Oh, wow. So not too far. Um, it really isn't. And a lot of, depending on the season, uh, particularly Christmas and wine, um, we have a lot of folk from... Um, so I know that, you know, it sounds like you have a couple of different fruit and vegetable production going, but I've heard that strawberries are your real passion. And maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, is that come from a love of eating them or is there something kind of magical for you about, about the plants or the production cycle that, that has made them stand out as, you know, your favorite? Yeah, they say, actually, uh, I just turned 65 uh, and I've, growing uh, commercially strawberries, <laughs> excuse me, longer than anyone else uh, in Connecticut continuously. So I would love to make some romantic story about why they mean so much to me, but actually, although I do consider them the queen of fruits, they we sort of stumbled on them in, in the mid-60s. I was uh, raising organic vegetables and actually driving them down to uh, Manhattan to a couple of health food stores, which uh, was relatively uh, sparse back in the uh, early and mid-60s compared to now. And then um, I planted a few strawberries and had a lot of inquiries in our local area for them. And I found that uh, as, as moderately popular vegetables were the strawberries in June just were magic and people just would scramble to come and uh, they wanted to pick their own and, and that's how it all began. I know that was definitely every June my mom hauled our butts out to the strawberry patch and then as I got a little older I would make extra money in the summer picking berries for the lo local grocery store but that really led me to kind of d dislike the berry after yeah. I think eating my weight several times over. Um, so I bet I can, uh, uh, and I haven't met you, but I bet I could document your age if you tell me the piecework rate that you were paid for picking <laughs> four strawberries. Man, I don't even remember, but it, I, I I do remember that the amount that they paid us was exactly the same amount they sold the berries for in the store, um, which I thought was so strange, but, but basically they were using it as a tool to kind of get people to come down to the grocery store in the hopes that they would pick up other things if they knew that they could get freshly picked berries. Um, well, that's very impressive because I knew uh, uh, one of my colleagues who's since passed away, but when he was a child about 80 years ago, uh, I think he was paid a penny. Uh, and in the mid-60s when we were picking, I, I believe we paid a quarter. And actually now uh, all the berries we sell, people harvest their own. So I, I'm not sure what the rate is, but it's definitely changed. <laughs> as, as most food items have. So one of the things I feel like comes up uh, during berry season here in the cities, you go to the market and 
over the last few years, I've seen this real push to identify which variety of berries and and different farms have gotten, I think, identified with, with specific types. And there's been this discussion amongst chefs, you know, savory and pastry as to which variety is best and why and whether a small berry is better or a big berry or, you know, is it that the darker the berry, the sweeter the juice? Is that true? And I wonder if I could just get your get your take as um, someone who's had, you know, Sounds like about 50 plus years experience growing them. If there's a, a variety or a size or uh, that, that, that well, sticks out to you as the best. You're absolutely right. There's enormous uh, difference in flavor from cultivar to cultivar, variety to variety. Uh, it can vary. Uh, we have uh, fields in our, our low-lying valley and we have fields on top of a hill. And there's actually, in some years, a difference in flavor from the valley to the hill. There can be a difference from soil type to soil type. And the weather, the amount of sunshine, can play a major role. So, you know, in nat- nature, the only constant is, is change. <laughs> uh, but that said, I think this is one of the great attributes of of developing, uh, you know, know your farmer and, and buying local is you can drill down and get into varietals and flavors. And, and we have, um, and we're always trying new varieties, but the, we, we do intentionally select the best flavor uh, varieties. And, uh, we specialize now, and uh, we have Kent, Darcelac, Cavendish, and one of the new favorites from Italy, Eros. Eros. Um, which is a, a very sweet uh, berry. And so is, um, there's there's a lot to this, and it can be a lot of fun. We are you. I mean, are you sitting in the winter looking over like a catalog, deciding which you know there was like a little picture of the berry looking cute and a write up. And I mean, is that how you're selecting, or is it is it more word of mouth? And then I'm also just curious, like, do you have a sense of how many types of varieties there are? Oh, there are. Worldwide, there's hundreds. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, it's you know, and I will say this: where it's less about looking in catalogs and more uh, inquiry-based, uh, experiential visiting with other growers. Um, many farmers go to conferences and so on in the winter time. Uh, although this winter, it seems like we hardly stopped <laughs> farming. Yeah. Um, but it's it's. Yeah, word of mouth uh, from our colleagues around the country, and, and that's another factor is region of the country. Different different varieties definitely perform better. And uh, there's also the fascinating uh, perspective that as the climate is seems to be evolving, uh, these varietal successes may, may change as, as the, the uh, climate changes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that'll have an impact. I know that when... You kind of go to a more conventional grocery store. You know, they obviously generally have strawberries year-round, and they're always, you know, really big and not super tasty. And I'm guessing, you know, you you don't <laughs> you don't pick up many of those. But are are those change? You know, are those differences um, between the store-bought berries and kind of the berries one would find out at your farm? primarily just a reflection of, of all those choices that you've talked about. I'm assuming they're a different variety. They're grown in a different environment. I mean, 
Do you think we shouldn't be eating strawberries outside of June or? Well, uh, you know, I'm a believer in personal choice, but I do think that we have, and I, this is sort of a paradox, but I think in trying to have everything all the time, we have diminished our appreciation of, of what something truly of the highest quality uh, picked, vine ripened in season really is. And uh, our family definitely would prefer more seasonal eating. Uh, so you're having the uh, peak flavor and the experience. And uh, I do think there is no other crop that we grow that people, uh, our customers, get so excited about uh, just coming out in droves once, you know, the, the word spreads like magic once the, uh, the, the day we open. For berry there season? Is, there is, you know, there is simply no comparison. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with you there. We are going to take a quick break. Um, I know that if people want to get in touch about when when stuff is hitting the farm, they can find you at www.jonesfamilyfarm.com. You guys are also on Facebook and Twitter. And so people can check that out. And we'll be back in a sec with Terry Jones of Jones Family Farm. Foods Market creates win-win partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. Red Jacket Orchards is a family-owned farm in the Finger Lakes of the Hudson Valley that's grown for decades alongside Whole Foods Market. Their apples, pears, ciders, and juices are some of New York's best and seasonal staples for any kitchen. Come have a taste in one of our six Manhattan locations. All right, we are back, and we are on the line with Terry Jones of Jones Family Farms. Terry, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you, We got turned on to you through the Working Lands Alliance, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your relationship with that organization. Oh, that would be uh, a joy because uh, that's uh, an organization that uh, I was, uh, I guess, involved in the founding of it. It's only a little more than a decade, 12 years old, uh, and has made an enormous difference in the uh, protection and preservation of, of Connecticut uh, farmlands. Uh, and I might just read uh, or recite our mission statement. Uh, the Working Lands Alliance is a broad-based coalition that through fierce cooperation champions policy and education initiatives to protect Connecticut's productive farmland and advance local agricultural viability. And that in a nutshell, and I, I want to emphasize the fierce cooperation because we are governed by a steering committee of uh, a dozen or so folk representing different types of agriculture, many different uh, conservation, environmental groups, uh, university uh, groups and uh, uh, hunger uh, advocacy uh, groups. 
and we just work passionately. We leave our egos at the door, come in, and work with fierce cooperation to uh, help Connecticut uh, preserve its precious uh, farmlands. And I should add, we're also a project under the umbrella of the wonderful American Farmland uh, Trust. Oh, yeah, we are big fans of uh, American Farmland Trust here at the Heritage Radio Network. So given given this, you know, um, environment of fierce cooperation and, you know, a, the need to, I guess, check your ego out the door to work for the greater good, can you give us a sense of, like, what are kind of some of the main land issues facing Connecticut farmers and how they might differ from things we might see in New York or even be the same? Well, of course, it would depend. There's certain common denominators any place in the country, but uh, probably almost more than region, it, it's uh, a relationship of how close you are to the urban fringe and the value of land and the, the competition for, for good land for, uh, you know, either growing food or paving with asphalt and building homes and shopping centers, all of which has greatly slowed up uh, since 2008. I think many farmers are feeling less threatened by suburban sprawl uh, than we were. But, you know, uh, we have to take the long view, and and, uh, eventually that uh, pressure will will, uh, reemerge. But uh, meantime, I think it's it's giving, uh, in concert with the passion for local food and uh, better health and nutrition, actually opening up <clears throat> more viable opportunities to keep keep farms farming, which is terrific. Uh, we're a great uh, advocacy group that has had wonderful leadership We've, in our existence. We were actually, our guiding light was uh, Mark Winnie of the Hartford Food System, uh, who is now in the uh, Southwest, but he was a great visionary. And our first uh, project director, Jeff Martin, um, continues to work in Connecticut with the university. And we've actually reached out to one of your own in Brooklyn. Our, our new uh, director is Leah Mayer um, uh, of Brooklyn. And uh, actually, I say we had an international search because she was in Mongolia doing some anthropology oh, wow. research. But um, we're a big fan of Brooklyn and all the uh, diversity and the the brilliant uh, folk that you have, and we're we're sharing uh, the blessing of having Leah with us. So we're busy advocating uh, for the protection of farms. We're actually about to undertake a very exciting project, uh, the first uh, Connecticut Wine and Cheese Festival. That'll be at our farm. Ooh, it sounds like fun. Yeah, so people should keep in touch on that. It's uh, we're definitely within within reach of uh, your listening audience to come out um, and, and, and enjoy this. It's going to be great fun. The twenty uh, second, twenty third of September, and it's the uh, very interesting uh, uh, split with the uh, the. Proceeds from this festival are obviously going to our work with farmland preservation, but there's a unique uh, 
project in the five uh, neighboring school districts to improve the nutrition and and health uh, and exercise of every kid in this uh, five-town district. And uh, we are working with them, and, and the, um, the, this festival will also benefit that effort. It's really, really very exciting. Yeah, and I see here that you were, you have been appointed the Connecticut Citizen Representative to the New England Governor's Commission for Land Conservation, but also in 2011 were appointed uh, by the governor to the Connecticut State Board of Education. And I, I you know, I, that seems like an, an interesting uh, overlay of, of how, how to impact uh, education through through food and through food food education, I mean, is that your primary charge in that role, or how does that relate to to your other work? Well, I I know the governor uh, wanted a farmer on the board, and uh, I think it was a stroke of genius. Not so much because it happens to be me, but because food, healthy eating, nutrition is just a vital part of of, of successful education. Uh, a child who's hungry or not well-nourished is not going to be a successful learner. And uh, although many, many kids in Connecticut, obviously that's not a big issue. There are many, many where it is a big issue. And so we're working, and my colleagues on the, on the uh, state board are extremely sensitive to this. So uh, the other, having my other leg in Connecticut agriculture, we're working at, at ways to expand production of uh, fresh uh, foods and not just fruits and vegetables but meats and, and dairy and cheese and all that so that uh, school and uh, lunch programs and breakfast programs can uh, can really drill down and, and get every kid having a uh, really healthy uh, successful nutritious meal uh, every there's, there's a lot of buzz about it and it's exciting time. It is exciting. And it's like, I think the challenge is, you know, transitioning that buzz and excitement into something, you know, tangible for the students and then also for the people producing food in your region. And, you know, you have your have your feet or your hands or both, I guess, in a lot of in a lot of different buckets. And I, I think historically, you know, farmers in America have really driven a lot of the change that's shaped the country. And I'm just curious, you know, in in your many roles, if you have any advice for, you know, next generation farmers as far as, you know, what, what mantles or issues that they should be looking to in addition to, um, you know, obviously the day-to-day business of running a farm or how you see this next generation kind of shaping the country. I think it's absolutely critical that uh, they are involved in their community, uh, both in, in helping educate the community. Uh, we have a robust uh, education program on the farm, and the kids that come, it's inquiry-based and, and successful. And you know, every farm can can partake at least a little bit of that. Um, I, th- I think that uh, we're very concerned to be leaders in environmental practices. Uh, we're you know, particularly, and it really was the first 
Philip Jones, who was Generation One here, who said, "Be good to the land, and the land will be good to you." And our, we have an almost maniacal focus on the health of our soils, and our, you know, composting and uh, building the quality of our soils, which is the best antidote for those vagaries of the weather and the extremes that we seem to be finding, whether it's extreme wet or extreme dry, we seem to be on this roller coaster. Uh, the only thing for sure is it's going to be extreme one way or the other. And having a healthy uh, uh, soil high in organic matter and, and, and uh, filled with, with um, its own biological ecosystem really the best antidote for that. And, and so we do it and we preach it, and uh, I think that's a, an important part of being a farmer today and actually you know, being a good citizen. You have far more influence uh, in the way you live and the way you set an example uh, than what you say. That's that's totally true. And one of um, you know, one of the other areas that that you do work in with regards to this type of environmental stewardship is uh, brownfield remediation. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain a little bit of what that what that is and what that looks like for our listeners. Well, we're you know, any and certainly Connecticut is is doing some good things. There's tons more to do, but to uh, re reshape, revitalize the brownfields uh, of our old industrial sites. We are a little unique as a farm because in 1956 the United States Army came knocking on my grandfather's door and said, we need part of your farm for a, a Nike missile site. You tell kids today Nike and they think it's sneakers. Well, they were the, the, uh, one of the early waves of um, our coastal defense with missiles at the height of the uh, Cold War in the mid-50s. So, uh, sadly, our hilltop was stripped and fenced out of the farm with a chain-link fence. And uh, interestingly, at the time it was constructed, uh, the engineers said, by the way, uh, this technology is already obsolete. So it was not a big surprise that 18 months later it was uh, abandoned. And... uh, our family, three generations of us have worked, and it took 40 years to reacquire it. It was a very, I uh, will never forget the afternoon that the paperwork was signed, and it was part of us. I really, truly can emphasize with the Native Americans. I mean, it was, it was something we never wanted to be taken from us. And uh, so, hence, Brownfields Remediation, because it... It left our family pristine, and it came back a mess, and we have devoted the last decade to cleaning it up and putting it back in production. And uh, I must say it's, uh, it's a daunting task, but uh, I think we've been quite successful. It's certainly very rewarding. Wow, fact, that is a crazy thunder, story. Not to steal the thunder, you'll hear more next week, but we took the old mess hall, and that's the uh, wine production area after it was uh, uh, remediated and rebuilt. But that's, I think, maybe unique. 
Yeah, unique to unique to your farm, I'm sure. Well, we are just out about out of time, but I had kind of one final curiosity. You know, being that the the farm has been in operation since 1848, I'm just wondering if there's any kind of interesting uh, old equipment that is still kicking around, maybe in use or maybe not in use, that might be a little uh, specialized or unfamiliar to the average farm folk that you could share with us? Well, I'm sure there are a number of items, and one of our dreams is to document some of them. They are in storage and have them on display. Uh, I Nothing directly comes to mind, but I will say one thing that's very interesting. In 1960, I bought my first tractor. It was a, a, a Farmall uh, uh, 140, and I still use it every day on the strawberries. And it's it's that basic uh, tillage uh, component, and you know it's very. That's the amazing thing about agriculture. We have amazing new technology, but some of the the basic production techniques are still on basic principles and the fact that they can still use this, this uh, almost 50-year-old uh, tractor. Uh, but, you know, we take good care of it and it, it's still out there running. Compare that to the uh, your computer. Oh, my gosh. I don't even, don't, I don't even want to get into it. Um, definitely not a similar um, lifespan by about 500% on my computer. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to speaking with Jamie next week. In the meantime, our listeners can check out more about the Jones Family Farm at www.jonesfamilyfarms.com and get ready for strawberry season. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.